Luke chapter 2, are you there? Let's start with verse 1, and we'll go to verse 7, and then we'll begin this morning. Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. Would you pray with me before we dive in? Heavenly Father in heaven, I pray that your word, which uh, the psalmist said is a light unto our feet, a lamp unto our path. Um, I pray that this word would shine brightly into the areas of our lives that need to be exposed by your truth. The areas of our lives that maybe are clouded in mistruths and self-doubts and lies. And would you speak to our hearts this morning by the power of your gospel, which is foolishness to those who are perishing, but for those who are being saved, it is very power of God. We thank you. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts this morning. For without you, we are just... (laughs) people trying to be very well disciplined, but we need you to change us from the inside out and make us more like Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you're a parent here, if you remember the first day your kids were born, if you remember when those kids popped out of the oven and, uh, I don't know what that was like for you, uh, but I remember for, for us, uh, we didn't have too many complications. Well, we had the second one. Emily was a little bit, a little bit of trouble. She came real quickly. Uh, but regardless, uh, I, I remember, as most of you, when you know, the baby gets handed to you, it's wrapped in that, remember that white blanket with the blue and pink stripe? Does, is that everyone? You know what I'm talking about, right? right? To me, that sticks out as... Uh, if, if you've never seen a baby, uh, it, they're usually wrapped in those little, they wrap them up real tight, right? And, the, and uh, I think several times I tried to take them home, but um, Leona was like, you can't do that. It's not ours. I was like, okay, oh, but these are so cool. Uh, okay, did I just admit that I wanted to steal? Okay. I wanted, to, I paid, for, I, you should have seen my insurance bill. That was a lot of money. So, Well, for Emily, it was nothing. We didn't pay anything. So for the first one, for sure. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I remember being wrap, wrapping them up in, the, in that nice, clean, white linen with the, with the pink stripe and the blue stripe in it and wrapping up. And all of our kids, they needed to be... It felt like I was strangling them. They, they wouldn't fall asleep unless I like... And just like, fold it. And they put them down, the little bean. And, uh, but if you were to tell me that I would be placing Brennan or Emily, or Mia, uh, 
into a feeding trough for animals, I, I would have told you you were crazy. But this is the way that Jesus was born, right? I, I, think, I think we forget sometimes in the serenity of silent night, hold on, you know, we think of, you know. But as we know, all of those of us who've had children, we know that there was no silent night for probably a good four to six months, right? I mean, <laughs> depending on who you are and if your kid has colic. But Jesus was born into this reality, into a manger, into the awkward Jesus came into our world. And if it wasn't enough to make things awkward, if these realities weren't enough, he was born to a pregnant teenager who had not yet fully entered into marriage with a seemingly blue-collared carpenter who was fully aware that he would be this baby's stepdad. That the world would eventually declare to be Savior and Lord. And there was nothing extravagant about the birth of the one that would be called Savior, Lord, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Oh, hallelujah, King of Kings and Lord of some of you know. Glory, hallelujah. Oh, goodness gracious. We are in for a treat today if all the songs are coming to me at once. In fact, you can say the circumstances around Jesus were, at best, messy, right? And if there's anything that sticks out as the takeaway, or the, maybe the, the biggest takeaway from the story of Jesus' birth, I, I think it's, it's this, it has to be, it has to be this, that Jesus is not afraid to enter into our mess. That Jesus is not afraid to enter into whatever it is as you look at your own life, as you look at the circumstances, you know, the circumstances that you yourself wish you weren't even in, nonetheless invite the Savior of the world to be in. And depending on where you're coming from, that might not be a thing that you don't want to inconvenience God about, but because you think of who God is and who he should be, you don't want to invite God into the very thing that you think he should have already been interrupting anyways because he's God and so he should be here. But regardless of what the mess looks like for you and what that means for you in your life, here's what you need to know. Jesus is not afraid of our mess. For those who've chosen to follow Jesus, we don't serve a God who tiptoes around the uncleanliness or is intimidated, or is intimidated by the realities of humanity. In fact, we learned a few weeks ago by looking at Matthew's part in the Christmas story. Remember Matthew, the genealogy, so and so was father, so and so and so was father, so and so and so. Tamar, ah, and then Rahab, a prostitute, ah. Uriah's wife, the one that shall not be named, right? Like something out of a Harry Potter movie, like a Christian version. So it's probably bad, but anyways. We learn this in Matthew's part of the Christmas story that Christ died for us at our worst. That was the point. And so humor me for just a minute and imagine that you had the chance, that you had the chance to be a writer of one of the Gospels. Just humor me with your own imagination, just for once. I know in these type of settings, you usually just listen to a speaker, but here, I'm going to ask you just for once, like just to humor me and imagine this. Imagine this. So you might, is your mind ready? Is your mind ready? Imagine this. Imagine that you had a chance to be one of the writers of the Gospels. Okay, 
the good news of Jesus. Now, think about this. What would you write? Now, don't think about what's already written. Think about like what you would write about this good news king, this good news savior. What would that include? How would you start it? What would it look like? We know what Matthew chose to write about. He chose to write down what could have been a source of shame. Remember? He was a tax collector and a sinner. Still instead, Matthew leaned on the messiness of his story to tell a better story. The story of Jesus when asked, Why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus says this, It is not those who are well that need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. As I said before, for those of us who have chosen to love and follow Jesus, we serve a God who does not tiptoe around uncleanliness or is intimidated by the realities of humanity. And Jesus doesn't hesitate at, doesn't hesitate at all in the face of our mess. On the contrary, he initiates, listen, on the contrary, Jesus actually initiates the solution to our mess. He interrupts the trajectory of our lives so that we can be a part of a new path uh, a new way, which is why the early Christians were called followers of the way. And so Jesus interjects himself in the narrative of our lives. And then he does something peculiar. He invites us to be part of the better story that he is telling in the world. Which begs the question, what would it look like if we saw the messes of our lives not as a problem to solve, but as an epilogue to a more remarkable story God wants to tell? I think it would look like learning to repurpose our perspectives so that we can stop viewing our lives through the lens of our personal circumstances. You know what I'm talking about. My life is whatever I'm going through. But instead, view our lives through the lens of God's sovereignty and God's grace. Now, all of that is just a recap of what we talked about a few weeks ago. And while today seems like we're finally looking at Jesus in our series, because it's called Characters of Christmas, and looking at different characters in the Christmas story, and it's like, oh, we're finally at Jesus. Way, yay! While it seems like we're finally looking at Jesus, today I actually want to focus on something that may not seem as clear today as it was to the original readers of Luke's account of the birth of Jesus. So before we get to the part of the Christmas story where the uh, shepherds are out on their fields keeping watch by flock overnight, you know, the part that, um, that Linus reads and goes, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie, right? That part, before we get to that part, Luke reminds his readers 
he does he does something very interesting i think before he gives us the christmas story he actually um he does something you're not supposed to do in church well they say you're not supposed to do in church well he, he gets political and he reminds the readers of the political climate that jesus was born into Verse 1, in those days the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. Now, I know all of you at your Christmas parties are talking about the wonderful impact of Caesar Augustus in the Christmas story. So I know what I'm about to say to you is old hack and like, oh, why are you telling us this, Phil? Sorry, spoil your fun. But just in case there's some of you out there who don't really talk about Caesar Augustus that often or maybe are not very well of the implications of him as part of this story. In the days of Jesus' birth, there was this kingdom ruled by a king named Caesar Augustus. It was a Roman Empire. And Caesar Augustus actually is just a title. It's, it's just a title. It would actually be one of the many adopted by the child of a famous Julius Caesar that would be, you know, he would be adopted by Julius Caesar. And this is one of the many names that he'd be called. In fact, uh, one historian tells us this. He said, he collected numerous titles over the course of his life, such as Pontifex Maximus, chief priest, Principes, first citizen, Imperator, commander-in-chief, and Divi Filius. Ooh, sounds good. Son of a God. Not son of a gun, son of a God. The last of which he took on following Caesar's deification by the Senate, which is why they called him Augustus, which means literally the revered one, the reverend one. And this is the backdrop upon which Jesus was born. Jesus, (laughs) the one that the prophet Isaiah would declare this, for to us a child is born, a son is given, And the government will rest upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and the government and its peace, his government and peace will never end. The picture of God's kingdom of peace stood in stark contrast to the kind into which Jesus was born, a kingdom ruled by a man named Gaius Octavius. Gaius Octavius, who built his empire by eliminating his enemies. On the other hand, there was Jesus, who taught people to love their enemies. Gaius Octavius was popular with the masses and most of the powerful around the world. And while Jesus was at times popular with the masses, the powerful hated him. And the masses eventually turned on him. Gaius Octavius feared and betrayed. Uh, feared, feared betrayal. He feared betrayal by rivals. In fact, he was, he was very almost uh, uh, paranoid is the word that I'm thinking. He's, he was paranoid about rivals and, and people like overtaking his throne. So what did he do? He surrounded himself with a, a Praetorian guard of approximately 5,000 highly trained soldiers. If you don't know the impact of that, if you've ever watched Gladiator and you, you know the, the little wimpy man, right? You know, as all the soldiers around him, that's, that was kind of what he did. He had all those soldiers around him. That's Gaius Octavius. 
Jesus, on the other hand, he, he knew that he was going to be betrayed. No surprise. And <laughs> to make sure that it happened, Jesus surrounded himself with 12 people he called his disciples, one of whom, which would be his betrayer. Gaius Octavius would obtain the Pax Romana, or as we say in English, Roman peace, through the strength of his armies. And Jesus would bring peace. Between the most impossible, irreconcilable kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And he would do it through the death of Jesus on the cross for all who trusted in him. Gaius Octavius, a.k.a. Augustus, would have a month named after him. And no one is, offend, is offended, right? The month of August. Now Jesus, on the other hand, he has a greeting named after him. Uh, you might have heard it before. Merry Christmas. And uh, it seems like many are offended. It was against this backdrop of an earthly kingdom that Jesus introduced to us his kingdom and showed us what it means to live as citizens of that kingdom. We don't find it directly in this text, but follow Luke along the road and you'll know. But this was the beginning of declaring that Jesus, not Caesar, is king. But to demonstrate just how much Jesus brings good news, Luke needed to establish the reality of earthly kingdoms first. Earthly kingdoms are not defined by power, but God's kingdom is... Uh, earthly kingdoms are defined by power, but God's kingdom is characterized by humility. For instance, the United States is the most powerful nation in the world. But it's not, <laughs> it's not because, like, of our generosity. We're not powerful because we have the most love. We're not powerful because we're the most kind nation in the world. Now, don't misunderstand me. Some of you are like, where you go with this? This is not some attempt to make a political statement or engage in anti-military rhetoric. That's not what I'm doing. The point is that for those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus, the scripture tells us that we are citizens of a different nation. In fact, we are citizens of the kingdom of God, of heaven, Philippians 3.20 tells us. And citizens of the kingdom of God do not allow the way that earthly kingdoms operate. Listen, we do not allow the way earthly kingdoms operate to infiltrate our perspective on the way that the kingdom of God operates. Now, this is not um, criticizing the way earthly kingdoms operate. I'm just saying that if you are thinking in relationship to how the kingdom of God operates, and in your mind you carry with you the way this nation governs, you're going to be very mistaken. Just as mistaken as the child who grew up with an absent father now views God the Father. Because 
our earthly fathers are not a reflection of our heavenly father. Our heavenly father is, as I've said many times, is the perfection of what a father should be. And so the kingdom of God is not a new and improved version of any earthly kingdom. On contrary, the kingdom of God is an entirely distinct and radically opposite way of creating peace on earth. The kingdom of God is not defined by the sword, but by humility. In fact, this is why the apostle Paul wrote this to believers that he himself was discipling, many of which he led to Jesus. He said this in Ephesians 2.14, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when his In his own body on the cross, he broke down the walls of hostility that separated us. And so it's against this backdrop of an earthly kingdom ruled by Caesar, the scripture makes it clear, that earthly kingdoms are driven by self-interest, but God's kingdom is driven by self-sacrifice. In fact, I wouldn't even say driven, because that would be even, that would, that would, Make it seem as if though God's kingdom was an ambitious one. It is actually defined. It is humility. It is self-sacrifice. You know, in old Roman ruins, ruins, archaeologists have discovered many prayers from thousands of years ago that people actually paid to have written down and stored. And they now call these, and you can Google it yourself, they call them curse tablets. Because curses were the most common prayers ever recorded in this time. And in these prayers, people would address a god or goddess and say things like this. This person hurt me, and here's how they hurt me. I want to pay back. I want you to hurt them. Inflict pain on them, and here's how I want you to do it. Now imagine if that's how you taught your little kids to pray at night. In fact, here's one of uh, the actual prayers written at that time, and I'll just read it to you. It says this. It's, it's, it's crazy. I invoke you, holy angels and holy names, join forces with this restraining spell and bind up, tie up, block, strike, overthrow, harm, destroy, kill, shatter, Yukirios, a person, the charioteer and all his horses tomorrow in the arena, arena of Rome. This was a guy about to enter into a race. So you know how like, you know, you know, like Americans, like when we pray, like, oh, dear Jesus, give us strength. Hopefully nobody gets hurt. Amen. Right. Look what this guy's prayer. He's about to enter a race, and this is his prayer. Kill him. Destroy him. Let the starting gates not open properly. What? Let him not compete quickly. Let him not pass. Let him not make the turn properly. Let him not receive the honors. Let him not squeeze over and overpower. Let him not come from behind like the Vikings beating the Celts. Woo! Anyways. I got to use that. I figured out how to use it. That was a great game. Okay, let him come from behind and pass, but instead let him collapse. Let him be bound. Let him be broken up. Let him drag behind, both in the early races and in the later races. Oh my goodness. Like, this is the most common prayer ever recorded on these tablets in the ancient world. Can you imagine prayers like that now? And then there was another category of prayers uh, during this time. And um, unlike the curse tablets, uh, they were... uh, Maybe we'll call them uh, bless my enemy tablets. You know, the ones that sounded something like this, you know, your curios hurt me badly in the last race. So would you help me find genuine repentance? Would you deliver me from my resentment? Would you forgive his sin and mine? Would you heal our relationship? 
And how many of these kind of tablets do you think were found in ancient Rome? Zero. None. Why? Because people did not pray this way. In the ancient world, fierce loyalty to friends and violent opposition to enemies were considered noble. Like, you would have read that last prayer and be like, yeah, 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 kill him, yeah, kill him, yeah. And unfortunately, probably would say, some people would say a lot hasn't changed in 2,000 years. But into that world that Jesus was born into, a carpenter from the tiny village of Nazareth started laying a foundation that would change the world. In one of the most famous sermons Jesus ever preached, he said this, Matthew 5, 43, you've heard the law says, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Oh, and uh, pray for those that persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your heavenly Father in heaven. And so being a child of God is not just saying, I'm forgiven, not forsaken, I am who you say I am. Being a child of God is having the kind of heart and the kind of rhetoric that finds you saying, oh Lord, would you bless those who persecute me? In earthly kingdoms, citizens ask this, what's in it for me? How does this benefit me? How can I achieve all I can achieve? How can I protect what I've built? How can I be all I can be in the army? But in God's kingdom, citizens ask this. They ask, how can I serve? How can I bring hope? How can I bring healing to others? What, what, what hasn't been entrusted to me that I can sacrifice to bring peace to the world? See, the story of Christmas establishes that the hope of the world does not lay in any particular version of an earthly kingdom, but in the kingdom of God which operates with a completely different understanding of power. The power of God's kingdom isn't in its ability to flex its muscles, but in demonstrating love. And specifically, this demonstration of love is most poignantly displayed through God sending his son Jesus to die on a cross, so that we can experience the kind of transformation in our lives that makes us more and more submitted to Jesus as master and savior day after day after day 
after day. And really, I don't know about you, but that transformation of becoming more and more like Jesus day after day after day. You know, the kind of transformation that makes me lie less, because remember I was going to lie about the enemies, that makes me angry less, that makes me lust less, that makes me envy less, that makes me ambition less in the sense that I'm not thinking for number one. Like, you know, that kind of transformation that puts others before myself. I don't know about you, but that kind of transformation feels like it needs the power of God. Because it does. And that is the power of God. Or as the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 1, 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so the story of Christmas and all the characters intertwined within it tells a story of the announcement of God's desire for us to show us his love for us despite whatever mess we believe our life or the life of others is not just a message for you whose life is messy, but this is actually a message for you who you think your life is all good, but everyone else's life is pretty messed up. This is a message that God wants to interject in your heart to say, hey, have a little bit more compassion, have a little bit more grace, have a little bit more understanding. Why? Not because people deserve your grace, your understanding, your empathy, but because I, God, who came from heaven to be with you, wants to demonstrate that I am a God who is not afraid of people's messes. By the way, I've chosen you. You are my ambassador. You're the one who looks like me, carries my message, who's going into the world through whom I literally declare to the world, be reconciled to me. Like, Do you know that about your life today, beloved follower of Jesus? Like, God wants to do that through you. What a high calling. What an amazing opportunity. What an honor. And to me, that's the power of Christmas. And if you allow it, this Christmas story can be the whispers of God in your ears, if you allow it. That maybe something, maybe that maybe sounds something like what one author has imagined, and I quote Max Lucado at Christmas a lot, just because one, he has a lot of really good books on Max Lucado. Um, but it's kind of a way I try to get brownie points with my wife who likes Max Licato. All right. Um. But maybe the Christmas story can be the whispers of God in your ears. Something like this. Maybe you could hear God say this. Hey, 
No mess turns me back. No smell turns me off. I live to live in a life like yours. Every heart can be a manger. Every day can be a Christmas.